0: And uh, thank you for being here. You can open up your Bibles to John chapter 12. We're going to be working our way um, through verses 12 through 26. I'm not going to read it to to start. We're going to we're going to work our way through there. So um, before we begin, let's just pray together. Everybody's there, including myself. Okay, so let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for um, this opportunity to gather together again, to sing your praises, to partake in communion together, just being reminded of our glorious Savior Jesus Christ, who lived in our place and died on a cross for all of our sins. So that we'd be forgiven, we'd be able to sit here this morning in this context, enjoying forgiveness of sins, all sins. Enjoying eternal life, enjoying fellowship that uh, Jesus, you purchased for us, these relationships Lord, we're forever grateful. We're forever grateful for the opportunity to open up your word and know you and to be able to hear your voice. And to understand your will. And so Lord, I pray that as we jump into this text this morning, you would um, sow these words into our hearts. That they would grow and they'd bear fruit in our lives. Lord, you would accomplish your good purposes in us. Through this text, this section of scripture. You'd encourage our hearts. Lord, you'd make us more like Christ. We ask that you would accomplish all of these things for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So, um, do you know how much a royal wedding costs? I'm sure you could probably Google it right now like I was doing earlier this week. But uh, typically a royal wedding, and by that I'm, I'm talking about like a Prince Charles or a Prince Diana or a Prince Williams and a Kate. Their weddings costed the royal family roughly between 35 and 45 million dollars and then on top of that it costed the people there about 10 million dollars just to help support this so for those who are getting married and i know you probably have been given a budget by your dad you could probably ask for a little bit more if you'd like it if you want to have a bigger and better wedding but but to do this there's a reason for it because you're the royal family so if you're the royal family then what do you need to do You need to kind of make a big deal because you're the royal family. And the reason they make it a big deal is because in reality, the rest of the world makes them a pretty big deal. And so if you're older, by older, I mean sort of my age or older. So when Prince Charles and Princess Diana were getting married, you probably, not all of us, but but some of you, I'm going to guess. I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. you, You might have gotten up early and watched it. You don't need to tell us who that is, but a lot of the world did that, and the reason a lot of the world did that is because royalty is kind of a big deal. We, we, we like to look in at these types of families who are a little bit different than us, and we like to see what they're doing, especially in weddings like this. And if you're younger, then you probably watched these young princes get married, and if you didn't watch it, you probably Googled it or have seen pictures of it, and, and it's extravagant, isn't it? I mean, if you spend 35 to $40 million on a wedding, and then you add in an extra $10 million, you can do a lot of things. You can make it very expensive, obviously, and very extravagant. And so I'm sharing this with you because our world celebrates royalty. We just do. We, we treat them in a certain way, but I'm, I'm sharing it not just to highlight them, but I'm sharing it because we, we have a king in Jesus who also made this triumphal entrance into Jerusalem and it, it looked a little different than the way in which the world we live in celebrates the royalty we have among us. And so I just share that with you as a bit of a contrast and to be thinking about that as we look at what our Savior did as he entered Jerusalem as a king, but he came for a different Thing than what the world expected. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at chapter 12, verses 12 through 26 and sort of break it up into three parts. And the first two parts really are just uh, sort of background and sort of describing what's going on. And then this third final part is, is really some instruction or a speech that our Savior gives um, as he answers a question that he was asked. And so let's just jump into this first part. And in the first part, we see the king's triumphal entry. So we see Jesus entering Jerusalem. Verse 12, Apostle John writes the following. He says, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. And so it was Passover and people were coming from all over the region to Jerusalem to celebrate God's faithfulness to his people his faithfulness to deliver them out of slavery to the Egyptians and so they celebrate this every year as a remembrance of who God is and and his ability and to save them to make them his people and to bring them out of this slavery it was also soon after Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead and this is important because Jesus was living life he was teaching. He was performing these miracles. He was a man that that people uh, were sort of flocking to. They were interested in because when he spoke, he spoke with great authority. And when he did things, they were miraculous. And one of the things he did with Lazarus is he raised him from the dead. And so there was a buzz going on around him at this point. People were curious and they were in awe of him seeking to understand who is this man that teaches with authority and who is this man that can even raise people from the dead. And so there were people who were curious and the crowd was interested in him. Earlier in John chapter 11 verse 45, Apostle John wrote this about raising Lazarus from the dead and what people were doing. He said, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. And so some people were starting to believe in him, that this was a man who, could, who had great power, a man who, who could raise people from the dead. It, was just, it just wasn't normal. Okay? We can all agree on that. That There's something different about Christ at this time. And so it created this exciting time in Jerusalem And there was this excitement sort of growing around Jesus. People wanted to see him. They wanted to hear from him. And so when they heard that he was coming into Jerusalem, they all gathered together to praise him. Verse 13 says this. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and he sat on it just as it is written. Verse 15, fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So If you can imagine this, this electricity sort of in the air. And that's kind of what John's doing. He's he's capturing this for us to remember this, to understand this. There's, there's an electricity and an excitement in the air as thousands of people gather together, line the streets, all shouting Hosanna, as Jesus rides in on this donkey. Now, Hosanna, just so you know, it literally means save. Or in this occasion, it means save us. And so the crowd saw Jesus riding on this donkey and, and they're crying out, literally, save us. Hosanna, Hosanna. And so there's some excitement and there's some acknowledgement that, that here's somebody who's special. Here's somebody who can deliver us, who can save us. And so the streets are erupting with people and we've got these palm branches here and, and they're waving these things because they see him as a deliverer. They see him as a savior. And so they're shouting, Hosanna, save us. But they weren't shouting it in the way that you're probably shouting it and we were singing about it this morning. They they weren't necessarily thinking Jesus, the one who's going to deliver us from all of our sins, who's going to give us eternal life. They, they weren't really thinking about him like that. They were thinking about him in a, in a different way, in a more sort of worldly, practical way that they looked at him and they saw him as, as sort of this deliverer from all the pain and sort of the Roman rule over them. And so they were looking at him as more of an earthly king. And when he comes in riding on this donkey and they're shouting Hosanna, they were looking more for this political figure to rise up and to rally them and people so that they would be delivered from Roman rule. So they were waving these palm branches because at the time palm branches were symbolic of a nationalistic spirit. The palm branch was a symbol on a coin used to commemorate the Maccabean Revolt where Judas Maccabeus drove out the Greeks and freed the Transjordan tribes of Israel from their rule. It's kind of important for us to think about this, because, because they're shouting Hosanna, they're shouting save us, and they're looking at Christ as being this sort of political figure, this earthly king who's coming into Jerusalem to rally the people so that they would be physically delivered from all the pain and suffering they were experiencing under Roman rule. But Jesus wasn't there to do this. Jesus did something different than, no, than any other earthly king would ever do. And so as he's coming in and they're waving these branches, he's, he's not riding, this is interesting, he's not riding on a war horse. So something in their mind should have been sort of like understanding that something's not quite as, I think, it should be, but I don't know what they necessarily got at the moment. Instead of riding a big, bad war horse into Jerusalem to capture the attention of all these people in, in a bigger way. Instead, what does he do? He finds a donkey and he rides in on it. Now, a donkey is a, is a sign of royalty, but, but it's not the sign that a massive war horse, beautiful war horse, would would sort of command this respect. A donkey sort of communicates something a little different. Have you ever watched Winnie the Pooh? You're familiar with Eeyore, right? Got a couple of Eeyores in here. And you know what that means, right? For the most part, an Eeyore is not necessarily a real happy person. It's just kind of a ho-hum, kind of doing their, their things. Just sort of this humble looking animal that just kind of not really impressive so when you think about a donkey you think about it being slow and sort of boring but that's what Jesus chose to intentionally ride into Jerusalem on and make his grand entrance with it's a little different than that 35 to 45 million dollar wedding if you know what I mean Not spectacular in any way. And he did this because he's making a loud statement. A loud statement that that he's a new kind of king. He's a a different king. He didn't come to sort of meet their expectation. He came to bring his kingdom into this world. And it's so different than the world in which we live. And John quotes the prophet Zechariah to help us understand what kind of king Jesus is. And so Zechariah 9.9, I began our service today by reading it. Here's what the prophet wrote. He said, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous, and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. So when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on this donkey, what he was doing is he's saying, That's who I am. It was prophesied a long time ago, but but when he comes into Jerusalem, he's riding on this donkey, he's saying, Zechariah 9 9 is about me. I'm the one that was prophesied about. I'm the one who's humble and, mount, and mounted on a donkey on a colt but his disciples didn't get it. John 12, verse 16, John even writes about this. He said, his disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. And so what he's saying is, is this is what happened, but his disciples didn't understand this is what was happening until after he died and was glorified, filled with the Spirit, and then they understood this. See, now we have this written for us so that we might understand who our Savior is. That our Savior is a different kind of king. He doesn't need 35 to $45 million dollars of all the best electronics or the best carriage or whatever you could buy back then. He just needed a donkey. He's a humble servant whom God sent into this world To live a perfect life in our place. And he didn't come so that he would jump on this amazing throne in Jerusalem. And reign and and raise people up. Instead what he did is he came and he rode on a donkey. And he knew where he was going. He wasn't going to this amazing throne. He was going to a cross. Because he was going to humble himself. Humble himself to the point of death. So that his body would be broken, his blood would be shed so that our sins would be forgiven and we would be declared righteous and we'd have this right relationship with God the Father, having eternal life forever secured for us. So he didn't do this by, by serving himself. He did this by humbling himself so that we might be saved. But the disciples didn't get this. The world didn't get this. The crowd miss this. And I would just say for us, let us not miss this. Let us not miss who our Savior is. Let us understand that he is the King of kings who died on the cross for us. So that's kind of what was going on. And then it leads us to part two, though, where we see that the King is pursued. So he humbly humbled himself, rode into Jerusalem, creates this big stir, and then people start to ask questions. Who is he? What are you doing? Why are you doing this? This part doesn't seem like a, a major part, but, but it's important because what it does is it sets up really what Christ is getting after. And there's some other little things, but we're not going to get into it. But verse 20 reads like this. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So not just Jews being present here for this Passover feast, but there were some Greeks present at the time as well, and so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and so the presence of Greeks at the Passover, it wouldn't have been unusual, but one of the things you need to understand about Greeks at this time is they were were kind of wanderers. They wandered a bit, and, and one of the reasons they, they wandered a bit is is they were people who kind of, and it's not true of all of them, but for the most part, they, they loved wisdom and they loved truth. They, they went after these things, searching for answers and seeking to just understand truth and, and what wisdom was. And so we have here in this story, these Greeks present in Jerusalem, seeing this massive Group of people waving palms, and they've probably heard about Jesus, and and they've seen their opportunity. Now here's Jesus, here's the one who teaches with authority. Here's the one that's different than anybody else, really than who's ever lived. There had to been a difference. Here's a here's a God in the flesh, never having sinned, raising a dead person to life, and so naturally they're going to have questions. Naturally they're going to come and ask these questions, and so they're searching. For truth, they're searching for wisdom and they, they want to see Jesus and they want to they hear from him. And so it sets up really what, what John is getting after here. And it sets up this third and final part for us. And so they're asking basically, who is Jesus? Why are you here? And, and what are you doing? What is this all about? So point three, or part three, leads us to the king's speech. The king's speech. Now listen to what he says. And Jesus answered them. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I'm pretty sure this was not the answer that the crowd was looking for. I mean, there, there's a lot of wisdom in here. And what I would say is, if you're, if you're a person you're trying to think through, okay, what should I study next? Or what, what should I memorize? Or what should I think about this coming week? I'd say, give yourself to this section of Scripture. There's a lot of wisdom and there's a lot of truth. And we're going to get into some of that here in, in just a, a moment. But, but you will not regret thinking about what our Savior just communicated in answering these Greeks and the crowd and his disciples. And saying, why are, you, why are you here? What are you doing? He gives this teaching about life. Purpose. Wisdom. For what it looks like to be fruitful. In all that God has called us to. But I'm pretty sure the crowd was looking for something different. Probably one of those Braveheart speeches. You know, they're there waving these palm branches, looking for this political sort of figure to lead them into battle, and he doesn't give them that. He doesn't pull the sword from his side and say, follow me, let's go take these people. Instead, he just says, I'm here to die. It's completely different than the way in which the world thinks. This is who our humble Savior is. This is why he rode on a donkey He's a humble servant, obedient to the Father, came for the purpose of dying on a cross so that people like you and me might get saved. But the crowd wanted this Braveheart speech and they didn't get it because he's a king that doesn't rule by killing others who get in his way. Rather, he's a king that builds his kingdom by dying himself. For people like you and me. For enemies. He uses a very simple illustration here that demonstrates what he's doing. Look at me at verse 24. It says, truly, truly, I say to you. And just so you know, if you, if you ever see truly, truly together in a sentence in the Bible, just, just pay attention. He's just saying, this is, this is facts. This is important. So truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Kent Hughes, in his commentary, talking about this seed illustration, he wrote the following. He said, when you hold a kernel of wheat in your hand, you cannot see what is in it. Quite literally, each grain contains, if it is good seed, a million similar offspring. In planting season, a grain is cast forth into the ground as if in a tomb. Then it dies, is set forth from its encasement, becomes a resurrection plant, and its many grains are resurrection fruit. Jesus was telling the crowd he would fulfill his kingly role by dying and thereby reproducing his life in others. So God didn't come in the flesh to dwell among us and set up his earthly throne with an army of men and women to take over this world. He came to die. He came to give up his life like a piece of wheat or a grain of wheat must die so that it might reproduce itself. So Christ came and obeyed the Father and died on a cross so that we might be saved. Verse 25, he expanded upon this principle when he said the following. He said, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Jesus said that the one who loves his life will lose it. He wasn't saying that we need to walk around sort of hating our lives. But what he was saying is that that we need to die to self. is such a foreign principle, isn't it? In the sense of the world that we live in, the world we live in, it it sort of just, it just promotes the opposite. It's sort of this me first life. It says you can have your way right away whenever you really want it. But this is not the way that the Lord created us to live. Nor is it the way that Jesus lived and taught us to live as he called us to pick up a cross. To deny ourselves and to follow Him. Eternal life is, is, is not found in ourselves. We've been spending time in Galatians and, and Paul's been very clear on this. Eternal life is it's found through faith in Jesus Christ. It's found by trusting in Him in His perfect life and His perfect sacrifice on our behalf. It's, it's not found in, in us doing things our own way. It's found... In Christ, a fruitful life is found not in us doing what we want, when we want, but what he teaches us here is a fruitful life is found by denying ourselves. Trusting in Jesus Christ and, and following him. And so this is why I say study this passage. Is this passage, it really has application for every area of your life. So just think about your marriage. Happy marriages, fruitful marriages, are built upon spouses denying themselves, dying to themselves, considering not their own interests, but the interest of their spouse. So this this passage, it, it touches on your marriage. This passage also touches on the way in which we parent our kids or the which or the way in which kids you 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 relate to your parents. A a happy parent child relationship or what I'd say is a, a fruitful parent child relationship because a fruitful parent child relationship is not always a happy one. Just so we know that, right? Most parents you'll agree with that. It's it's not always happy, but it can be fruitful. And what I'd say is a, a fruitful parent-child relationship is built on principles and truths that Jesus is teaching here in this passage. It's a death to self. Dad, you want to have a fruitful relationship with your son or with your daughter? It's, it starts with you dying to yourself. Trusting in Jesus Christ. For the wisdom and the gifts that you need. For your own salvation. But it's a death to self. And it's a servant relationship. Same with moms and and kids. If you want to have a good relationship, a fruitful relationship with your parents, one thing you need to understand is, is the home doesn't revolve around you. It doesn't revolve around you. Our homes revolve around God and Jesus Christ. And when we die to self, there's fruitfulness. And I know there's, there's wisdom in there. And I probably spend hours just saying and asking questions. Well, what does that look like in this situation? Well, I'd say for dads, and now I'm a dad, one of the ways it looks is it means you don't always get what you want. It means sometimes when you're really, really tired, you still have to get up and go do things. Serve your kids, read the Bible, discipline them. I don't know whatever the situation may be, I'll, but what Christ is getting at is, is fruitfulness happens when we die to self. If you love your life, you're going to lose it. You're not, you're not going to run after it and try to make something of it. You're, you're going to trust Christ for it. And so when you think about the Christian life, one of the things that really marks the Christian life and what Christ is getting at here, it's just called serving. Serving. Sacrifice. Death to self. And the main reason for that is that's, that's what our Savior did. And that's what he's getting at. He rode into Jerusalem not to be served, but ultimately to serve by giving up his life on a cross For us. Ken Hughes again wrote the following. He said. Unless there is death. The vast possibilities inside us. Will not be released. We will shrivel and remain alone. We must die. Those who are beginning the Christian life. Or are awakening to their spiritual potential. Must learn that we live. By dying. We live by dying. We live by dying. Fruitful marriages, live by dying. Parenting, live by dying. Your relationships with one another. I would say one of the things that that, that need to mark our relationships with one another is death to self. Wherever there's selfishness, I would say typically what's going to follow is a whole lot of confusion and chaos. It may not show up right away, but, but it does show up. And all you've got to do is just just look. Look for a broken relationship. Maybe you're in one. And just evaluate and just, and just start to look. Okay, where is selfishness at work in my life? What is the fruit of being selfish? What did that produce? Typically, it never produces anything good. Unless there is death, the vast possibilities inside us will not be released. We will shrivel and remain alone. We must die. We live by dying. George Mueller, a 19th century evangelist and missionary, was once asked, What has been the secret of your life? He's a pretty fruitful man. To which he answered, There was a day when I died. Died to George Mueller, his opinions, preferences, tastes, and will. Died to the world, its approval or censure. Died to the approval or blame even of brethren or friends. Unless there is death to self, the vast possibilities inside us will not be released. Unless there is death to self, there will not be forgiveness granted. Nor will there be reconciliation. In our relationships. if you Just think about that. When, when you're sinned against. What, what do you have to do? If there's going to be reconciliation. We just took communion. And so one of the things. When we take communion. Phil didn't mention it today. But if you're going you read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. You're going to read through it. And there's a warning. There's a warning about taking communion in an unworthy manner. And one of the ways we take it in an unworthy manner is is we take it and we are in a relationship with another brother or sister that we know is not reconciled. Okay, And so the warning there is don't do that. If you're in a relationship that's broken, forgiveness has not been sought or granted, then you shouldn't take communion because, because Christ died so that we would be reconciled, so that we would be able to say... Do you forgive me? And the other person can say, yes, I forgive you. But one of the things we need to understand, when we actually forgive people, it's very costly. It's always costly. Somebody sins against you and they come to you and they say, will you forgive me? What do you need to do? Absorb their debt in some way. And then when we actually forgive somebody, we we sort of say, okay, I do forgive you and I'm not going to bring it up again. Forgiveness is costly. It means we die to self. And where there's no forgiveness, I'm going to say there's probably not going to be a fruitful relationship. Many marriages have been broken apart because there's a lack of forgiveness. As believers, We need to be very good at asking for forgiveness and granting forgiveness. In light of all that we have been forgiven of. And by that I mean Christ died on a cross for all of your sins. All of them. Paid the penalty for them all. So that you'd be forever forgiven and accepted by God. And and for us to withhold forgiveness... Is selfish. And there's warnings about that in Scripture, about being unforgiving. And so forgiveness requires death to self. Unless there's death to self, your home will be chaotic and overwhelming. Unless there is death to self, our church will not exist. Can you imagine if we all showed up next Sunday and we just said, we're going to do whatever it is we want to do. You could just do whatever, just selfishly pursue. Whatever it is you want to do, do you know what this church would look like? If we all just sort of in our pride decided to do what we wanted to do when we wanted to do it? I'd say this church wouldn't look like a church. We, we would probably not exist for it. Ron and I probably wouldn't get along very much. Phil and I wouldn't get along very much. You and I wouldn't get along very much because our desires would sort of clash. So living life in community with one another, it takes death to self. True life, the life God has created, called, and redeemed us to live, is always found through dying to self. So i this question, where do you need to die today? Not in a morbid way, but just, just where do you need to put that selfish desire to death? Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to serve? What's God asking you to lay down for the good of those around you? See, this comes kind of with a promise or a reward. John 12, verse 26 says the following, If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, listen to this, Father will honor him. The Father will honor him. And so there, there's reward in death to self. Not just this, this fruitfulness, living life the way God has called and created us to live, but, but he says the Father will honor him. There's, there's a reward for those who pick up a cross, deny themselves, and follow Jesus Christ. Have the band join me in closing coming back to the world, I think if if we're just being honest, the world really has no idea what it's doing. One day they say this, the next day they say that. And, and even like, I don't know, I don't have it all figured out. I'm not a, a big culture guy, but I try to study culture in, in some ways. And so it's always fascinating to see sort of what the world is doing and, and why they're doing it and, and who they celebrate. And, and I really end up in this situation... The world sort of cherry-picks some of the truths that we find in Scripture, but, but they don't necessarily know how to actually use and apply them, and so they, they use them in different ways. And we have to be very careful, and I'm going to get off on a tangent here, which I don't want to. But anyways, all I'm going to say is the world has no idea what it's doing. That's why there's a thing is fake news is sort of thrown out there. Everybody's, everybody's saying it, but what I'd say is the world's sort of looking for truth. And it has no idea where to find it. And they look all over the place and they'll say this is truth. And it might be partly true, but it's not really the truth. But but what I'd say is we have the truth. We need to be men and women of this this word. And, And we don't take our cues from the world. Because the other thing this world does is the world celebrates things that God hates. And I'd say the other thing about this world is everything in this world is temporary. We don't always like to admit it, but it's true. It's all temporary, including its praise. But bring it back to our text, what's not temporary and what is real is what John just communicated. He says, if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. That's truth. The world is not going to put that on its news platform. But our God this morning, through His Word, is calling us to die to ourselves, to pick up a cross and follow our humble servant and Savior, Jesus Christ. To give our lives away, serving Him. And when we do that, He says, those who serve me, the Father will honor. You can bank on that. So if Jesus came into this world to serve us by laying His life down for us, then shouldn't we trust in Him, pick up our cross, and follow Him? Let's stand and let's sing.